This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. Hello and welcome to Newsmakers. I'm your host, Lisa Pugh. School choice and public education advocates are anxiously awaiting a decision by the state Supreme Court on whether they will take a case that could end Wisconsin's school voucher program. Wisconsin is home to the nation's first school voucher program, started in the 1990s and now serving tens of thousands of students. We are talking about that case today with the lead petitioner in that case, Julie Underwood, who is the former dean of the UW-Madison College of Education and general counsel for the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, Rick Essenberg. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Julie, I'd like to start with you with just a little history for our viewers on what is the reason and the why and the how the school voucher program was started in the first place. Well, it started out as a small experimental program in Milwaukee, as you said, um, in 1990. Um, and it was stated that it was to allow students to move to um, from the public schools, from Milwaukee public schools into private schools um, because they were saying that the Milwaukee schools were failing and this would give parents a choice to, to move um, to, a, to a private school. But you know, nowadays, if we can move skip skip forward, you know it's now it's a massive program. It's not just Milwaukee. It's Milwaukee Racine statewide, um, the special ed voucher program, and of course um, the uh, the independent charters as well. And Rick, that Rick, that system has grown considerably since the nineteen nineties. Correct? How many schools and students currently? Well, I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you the number of schools and students, but um, I, I would agree with, with Julie that the program is much larger than it was 30 years ago. Although I would add that um, that, that growth and expansion, that movement from a small program to a larger one happened quite a long time ago. Uh, and so, you know, this has been a, a major part of the way in which we deliver educational services in this state for a long time. Julie, uh, the I, Julie, the voucher I, system. Yes, go ahead. And I just add to that. You know, the the expansion really has come since um, 20, uh, 2013 when the additional programs were added, um, twenty thirteen and twenty fifteen, and now it's about a hundred thousand students um, and well over um, five hundred million dollars that comes out of. Um, the education budgets to to pay for these programs. Well, Julie, the the voucher system has been challenged in the Supreme Court previously unsuccessfully. What is it that has about that change that meant that it has to be challenged again? You're basically asking the court to overrule a previous ruling. Is that correct? No, we're not. We're not. Um, there was a previous ruling um, in just the Milwaukee program, and um, and actually, I was involved in that program and that litigation. I was representing Burt Grover, who was then the state superintendent. Um, and in that program, it was found um, to be all right for the public funds to go to the private schools because it was an experiment. It was a small experiment. And as we say, 
it's not just a small program anymore. It's a massive program now. And it's really not a program to move um, public school students to private schools anymore. It's just a program to pay public funds to private schools. Rick, I know in your challenge, you say that that ruling is precedent, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, look, there's there's no way to buy these arguments that are being made in this petition uh, without overruling those prior cases. I mean, you know, the argument here is being made that a public purpose is not served. Those cases said that, no, this does serve a public purpose. I, I just don't think that you can get there um, without um, uh, reversing, you know, this well-settled law. And I suspect uh, calling into question many, many things about the way we finance public education uh, in the state. Let's talk about the claims made in the petition. We have a slide summarizing them. Uh, the lawsuit asked the court to rule on whether the state's school choice options, and there's four different programs being challenged, the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, the Independent Charter School Program, the Wisconsin Parental Choice Program, and the Special Needs Scholarship Program. The petition says that they those programs violate the Constitution in various ways, including the Constitution's public purpose requirement, the Uniform Taxation Clause, and the Superintendent Supervision Clause. The petitioners also allege that the state's revenue limit, which places a cap on the amount of funds local school districts can raise from property taxes to pay for local education. They say that violates the Wisconsin Constitution's uniform taxation clause. So this is very much in the weeds, but we want to break this down a little bit for our viewers. Julie, let's start with that first charge, the public purpose charge. In your petition, it says, Wisconsin's taxpayer-funded private school programs serve no public purpose. Approximately, now you said there was 100,000 students. My number is 65,000 students now being educated in publicly funded choice programs. What does it mean to say that that tuition does not serve a public purpose? Well, um, originally it was an experiment, which could be a public purpose. Um, but now at the, its size and the way that it is financed, because it does question the way we finance this public money going to, to private schools, as was said. Um, the question is whether it serves a valid public purpose. And we're arguing that cannibalizing the constitutionally required system of public schools, because the Wisconsin Constitution does require us to have a system of public schools, not a private, a, not a private system of public schools, but a public system of public schools. Um, and cannibalizing that constitutionally required system of public schools is just not a valid public purpose. Rick, the petition says that over 90% of school districts subtract a larger amount from their pot of state aid for each private school student from their district than they actually get allocated for that private school student. They say growth in state-funded private school enrollment is forcing public school districts, this is their words, into a funding death spiral. Do you believe that the voucher system has had a negative financial impact on public schools? Well, no, because, because look, if you, if you look at, you know, the history of this program, we spend more per pupil in public schools than we did um, when it started. And, and that shouldn't be surprising because, uh, you know, the, the amount that the state spends to educate voucher students is uh, less than uh, the amount we spend uh, per pupil, both state and local dollars, 
um, to fund um, public education. There's nothing unusual about this. Um, the government provides all sorts of public services, uh, either exclusively or partially through the use of private vendors. And we could go on and on. I mean, it's not just education. It's it's uh, you know healthcare and adoption services, and we go on and on down the list. And 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 and, and this is simply providing. Uh, to lower income students, uh, the same options that exist uh, for students from wealthier families. And it, it, it may have begun as an experiment, but the reason that it is where it is today is that it's an experiment that worked. Families like it. The public opinion polling shows that families like it. They love to have this option. Most people are going to continue to go to public schools. This is not about sector wars, but I think this is about giving families a choice because in some cases, it's what's going to work best for their children. Julie, the Constitution says that the rule of taxation must be uniform. This leads into your second claim in the petition. You cite a prior case that says the state cannot compel one school district to levy and collect a tax for the direct benefit of other school districts. But you say this is what is happening in the current voucher system. Can you explain that? Yes. So um, there are kind of two different pieces there. Um, we have a 1976 case um, actually dealing with um, with education or with school taxation that says that the um, the state can't compel a local school district to tax itself for a state purpose. And in this situation, it would be the state run programs, the state run, run voucher and independent charter programs, um, and that the a state can't require a school district to tax itself and send that money to another school district. Um, and so that's our allegation that that the, these programs actually violate that. And that has never been challenged in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Do you have an example of that for our viewers to help them understand what that looks like in practice in a school district? Well, sure. Um, you know, now we get into the funding, how these systems really work. And um, what happens is that the state finds out how many students are are um, going to either an independent charter or a voucher school. And um, then they remove the, the state money from the local resident district. Uh, so they just pull the, that money out, that, tui part, that tuition out. Um, in addition, the, um, the state pulls additional money out of the education general fund before the state starts divvying up the state money that goes to individual school districts. So state money is coming out of both the local, the local pot and the state pot. Um, and in many situations, the particularly now, um, since the, the voucher rates have increased um, up to $12,000 and $15,000 for the special education vouchers, um, the local school district, it may be spending less than that, uh, the low the low revenue ceiling um, for school districts is is has increased, but it's only increased to eleven thousand uh, dollars. So the local school district is going to have to 
backfill that. And in addition, um, as I said, you know, these are no longer sector switching students for the most part. Uh, for the most part, the students have never been in the public school. Uh, so it's not as if students are actually taking their tax dollars and moving from the public school to the private school. They've never been counted in the public school to begin with. So the money that's coming out um, from, the, from the local school district and from the state um, wasn't money that was given to the local school district before. It's not just a switch from public to private. Rick, I know your brief says that all choice programs are funded entirely by state dollars. Does that mean there would never be a situation where a local school district would be having to make up for lost funds from the state? Well, you know, the the the, the case that we're referring to was Busse versus Smith. It was in 1976. 1976. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what happened there was that uh, a school district, say Whitefish Bay, uh, which has high property values, uh, had to impose property taxes that would then be sent to another community, let's say West Dallas, uh, that has lower property values. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court said that you couldn't do that. But that's not what's happening here. Uh, first of all, um, property tax dollars are not used to fund the choice program. Now, the way that um, the petitioners here are trying to get around this through this kind of Rube Goldbergian uh, one thing leading to another thing to leading to another thing type of analysis in which they say that, well, you know, if you uh, if you don't get money that we presume, we don't know, but we presume you might otherwise have gotten, uh, then maybe you have to raise your property taxes in order to make up for that. And that's the same thing as you say, but it's not. And if, if we did treat it as the same thing, then lots of programs that we use now, uh, open enrollment, uh, equalization aid itself would be called into question because they would violate this same, uh, but for want of a nail principle that the petitioners are using here. And so uh, the, 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 the key here is that uh, school districts are uh, not being, they're not being asked to spend money to educate someone who doesn't live in their district, right? They are uh, being told by the state that this is, we are going to have to provide uh, this option where tax money will follow the student. And that doesn't violate uh, Busey. And oh my gosh, if it did, uh, there would be a, a chaos, uh, both with respect to the financing of a variety of public programs and in the provision of public education, because you would have a huge number of students, because remember, you know, in order to get a voucher, you have to be relatively low income. You can't afford uh, private school tuition. These people would be moving, these kids would be moving from uh, uh, private schools in the voucher program uh, to uh, uh, public schools run by the government. And uh, I think that uh, uh, the, the impact would be uh, overwhelming. I don't think these public school districts are prepared to do this. And that's why there are no public school districts that have joined this lawsuit. You know, I, I wonder if there is some confusion in this, this 
the funding of schools is very complicated to begin with, but I know on the DPI website, it says that when a district has their state aid reduced as a choice student leaves the district, they are allowed to make up that funding with property tax increases. Rick, do you think that that causes a little bit of confusion in where the funding for an actual voucher for a student goes comes from? They, 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 yeah, where they can raise their taxes and um, and they tend most school not all school districts but most school districts tend to do that because they don't like revenue limits and um, they'd like to spend more money rather than less money and that's a policy choice that they get to make but um, you know whether or not they have to do that um, is a complicated question that depends upon uh, the particular financial circumstances of the school district. Um, it, it may be that they have to do that if the voucher program is small, but as the voucher program and the number of students who leave uh, expands, then uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the uh, ability of the school district to adjust to um, its different enrollment numbers is greater, and whether or not they come out ahead or they come out behind is an empirical question. You can't uh, you, you, you can't simply assert it as something that must logically be true because that simply isn't the case. Well, can there's I, obviously- Can I respond to that? Could I- Go ahead, could Julie. I please respond to that? Um, so the, the assumption that's being made here is that students are leaving the public schools and going to the private schools, which just isn't true. 80% um, of the students in the voucher programs are not sector switchers. Uh, we haven't seen a drop in the percentage of students served by public schools as these programs have 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 grown. Um, and also, the assumption is that this is not local money. This is local money. Locals, local taxpayers are paying for these programs. It's not as if when when the students are moving, that the state is paying for the entire amount. These programs are paid for both by state state funds and local property tax. And that's very clear. There is a mix of local and state funds in education programs. That's the way we fund it in the state of Wisconsin. There, there's clearly considerable discrepancy in how petitioners and challengers describe that financial impact of voucher amounts subtracted from a local school budget when a student leaves the district for a choice school. But let's let's uh, start talking a little bit more specifically about the actual voucher amounts set by the state for the current 2023-24 school year. The statewide parental choice program vouchers are funded at. 9,893 per student for grades K through eight and 12,387 for grades nine through 12. The special needs scholarship program vouchers are valued at $15,165. Uh, independent charter schools are paid $11,385 per student. For, and we know that in the next school years, the voucher amounts for all choice programs will be increasing. Julie, so you are you alleging that all of the per pupil state aid that a school district receives uh, is per pupil is less than the amount of those voucher amounts. Is that no? Are you counting all state aid? No, no, not not all. Um, in the low revenue district, um, you know, our limit is eleven thousand, and of course, um, the the high school. Vouchers are twelve thousand these days, and the special ed vouchers fifteen thousand, and the independent charter payment is a little over um, eleven thousand. 
what but i i also um i also want us to to think about that the um the fact that these schools for high schools the voucher schools can in addition charge extra tuition um so i'm not sure how that plays into the providing services only for um low-income students there you know that there is a, a limit for milwaukee of 300 percent above poverty level uh, so that's 300 percent above poverty level level and of course for um the racine and the statewide program it's 220 uh, percent over poverty level um but mind you the schools can still charge additional money um, for high school students. So it's not as if this is just encouraging low-income students um, to, to, to move into these uh, private schools. Rick, I'm, I'm trying to understand the math here. The, when the Fiscal Bureau puts out nonpartisan information to the legislature, they, they've said this last year that uh, school districts receive $7,537 per student that they count as state aid. That number of state aid allocation appears to be lower than the voucher amount. What, what, what's missing in the math there? Well, I mean, you have to, I mean, first of all, there's this, there's this sort of um, um, rhetorical uh, sleight of hand, which is going on here in which, um, uh, you, you know, you, you, you constantly hear this claim that the voucher amount is more than the amount that the school districts get from state aid. And that could be true, uh, maybe is for many districts. But the problem is, is what's spent on you know, uh, students in public schools is not simply the state aid amount. It's also the local property tax dollars and, it's also, and the state aid amount. And those amounts put together and the revenue limit put together is greater than the voucher amount. You cannot as was uh, just done, compare the general revenue limit per pupil uh, to the voucher amount for high school students. It costs a lot more to educate high school students than elementary school students. You're comparing apples and oranges when you do. There's an assumption here that these are our students only if they go to our government school, and that's simply not the case. A school district has an obligation to provide education for everyone that lives within the district. Now, perhaps an individual school district would love everyone to come uh, to the school that's operated by, you know, that governmental entity. But the state has said otherwise, and it's said otherwise for good reasons. It's to provide a choice for people who otherwise would be unable to make it. And I, I have to tell you that, you know, 300% poverty rate in Milwaukee, uh, you know, to, to, to pay private school tuition out of that, I think would be very, very difficult for most families. Julie, that I oversight, just... I, we have to keep moving on. I want to get through all the charges. Oversight is the third claim. And I, Julie, I'm wondering, does the constitution say that a privately run school that receives public dollars for vouchers um, must adhere to the same oversight rules and regulations as a public school? No, as a matter of fact, in our state, there are very few regulations for private schools. Um, the, the constitution says that that if it's public, publicly, and we're, the argument is being made that if it's 
publicly funded instruction, that it should be publicly supervised. Private schools, when there are 100% private schools, um, don't have that same kind of supervision. Uh, and so private schools don't have to abide by the rules and regulations of the Department of Public Instruction in, in terms of teacher licensure, curriculum, graduation, graduation requirements. Um, they also don't um, have non, as many non-discrimination statutes that apply to them. As a matter of fact, um, private schools aren't required to fulfill the obligations of an IEP or, or provide services for students with disabilities in the same way. Um, and private schools can impose ideological curricula on students. And um, of course, there's no due process um, in their discipline codes. That's not required in private schools. So there's a lot of that um, that is su supervised by the state superintendent that is not um, provided in these voucher and, and independent charter schools. Um, in addition, there's no local control either because the private schools and the independent charters are not um, supervised by their local school board. Rick, why shouldn't uh, voucher schools, at least the ones that have a majority of, majority of public funded uh, enrollment, adhere to those same teacher licensing and non-harassment and suspension expulsion? Why shouldn't they adhere to the same regulations as a public school? Well, I mean, I mean, for, first of all, there, there are a fair number of regulations that apply to the choice program. I, I know that because my colleagues at Will spend a lot of time helping private schools navigate those regulations. Um, but you know, there's assumption here that politically determined regulations are unequivocally a good thing, and I think part of the rationale behind having this experiment is that allowing uh, 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 individual schools uh, to uh, adopt uh, different models that may work for some children, because children aren't always the same, uh, they are diverse, and uh, that that might, be, uh, that might be a good thing. So it's not a bug, it's, 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 it's a feature. And you know, to say that, well, you know, they don't have to provide uh, there's there's no obligation on what are often just sort of individual school buildings, uh, the same obligation that a public school district has with respect to certain types of disabilities. Um, there are lots of students with disabilities in choice programs, but uh, just as, you, you know, uh, a particular K-8 school doesn't have an obligation to provide these services, an individual public school doesn't either. The scale that you have with the public school district um, uh, allows these services to be provided in addition to government aid, uh, but, but, not, uh, but not every building has to do it. And, uh, you know, to, to say that, that uh, uh, there's ideological curriculum in private schools, but not ideological curriculum in public schools, I think just doesn't, uh, doesn't reflect what's really going on in public schools. So the state's revenue limits are the fourth charge in the petition. The petitioners say they violate the Constitution's Uniform Taxation Clause, which we've been talking about. Um, Rick, the legislature put those revenue, revenue limits in place in the 1990s. They capped the amount of money a local school district can level from local taxpayers to pay for local education. You say that that challenge to the revenue limits is not valid and would overturn precedent. Can you explain that to our viewers? 
I mean, I just don't think that there's any constitutional principle. I mean, it's certainly possible to argue as a matter of policy that, you know, the revenue limit should be changed. Maybe they should be increased. Um, maybe the uh, relationship of the various revenue limits, uh, you know, from one school district to another school district should be changed. They are largely the result of a political compromise uh, that was made years and years and years ago. Um, uh, and all that's fine. Make those arguments. I don't, you know, I don't have any particular position on that. But but as a matter of constitutional law, whether or not there's going to be a revenue limit placed upon local school districts uh, because you think that you need to do something uh, to protect local property tax payers, it, it, there, there's simply nothing in the Constitution that I think gets to that. If that's a matter of policy, that's something for the legislature and the governor to work out. It's not something that's for the courts. Julie, what, what's been the impact of revenue limits on public schools? Uh, the impact of uh, revenue limits on public schools has, has been incredible. Um, we There hasn't really been an inflationary increase um, for the last number of years. Um, at the very beginning of these, there was an inflationary increase given given by the legislature, uh, because that's how that's how those revenue limits are spending li spending limits. That's how they increase is either the legislature increases them, um, which has been happening until you know night until about uh, 2010 when there was a a significant drop in the revenue limits that was was put on schools. And then since then, there hasn't really been inflationary increases. So schools currently are operating their spending limit at about um, 2008 levels. So not to get a budget increase uh, for all of those years, if you had to do that as a private business, you would know how difficult that or impossible that would be. The other that's way- unconstitutional? That that's in the legislature. That's that's a st statutory requirement. Um, the other way that you can increase your revenue limits um, is by a local referendum. And we have, um, oh, well, over the last uh, five years, we've had 700 operating referendum uh, in, in schools. Now, obviously, that's school districts having to go to operating referendum more than once. But in terms of the constitutional obligation, there actually is a school tax article um, in the Wisconsin Constitution, and that's actually what we're talking about when we say that the uh, the legislature uh, can't put these these spending taxing and spending limits on the local entities. Julie, we started the show saying that we're waiting for the court to uh, tell tell the state whether they'll take up this case as an original action, basically bypassing the lower circuit court system. The, the choice program has been around for 30 years, yet in your petition, you're asking for an immediate stop to the school choice system before the next school year. What took so long to file this case and why not go through the lower circuit courts? Um, well... Uh, the program actually, as I said, has has increased significantly since 2013. So it's then it's not like it, it's been sitting around doing. We weren't sitting around twiddling thumbs, you know, all of those all of those years. Um, but the um, the enrollment caps come off in 2026, uh, which is an incredible impetus to to do something now before those enrollment caps come off. Um, 
because at that point, the taxpayers will be paying for two parallel systems of public of schools. They'll be paying for one that is publicly funded and privately controlled, and one that is publicly funded and publicly controlled. Um, so, so there's that kind of that kind of urgency. Also, kids are being harmed. Local school districts are in financial distress. Um, and they're not providing the services that they once provided to students. Students are only seven years old once. And so every week, every month that they lose the kind of instruction that we should be providing under the Wisconsin Constitution does damage to them. Rick, what will be the impact on choice students and schools if the court rules uh, in favor of this petition? Well, I mean, it depends on the school, the impact on some of them, particularly uh, schools that serve um, large percentages of low-income students, particularly in Milwaukee, will be devastating. Uh, the impact on public schools will be, um, uh, you know, they're going to have to you know, come up with money to educate all these kids. They're going to have to somehow hire teachers. They're going to have to, and we estimated that Milwaukee would have to get a number of new buildings um, in order to accommodate the influx of these students. But I don't think any of it's going to happen because, look, you know, I have brought and gotten accepted by the court more original actions, I think, than any other lawyer in the state. I know when the court will take an original action. This is not an original action case. There's not the proper urgency uh, this program has been in place for 30 years, and even if it first got big 10 years ago, that, that doesn't equal the kind of urgency that uh, gets an original action accepted, and it's factually complicated, and the, you, the Supreme Court is not set up uh, to... Uh, uh, to, uh, to to do that type of fact finding. And, and even the governor himself said, look, you know, the, you shouldn't take this case as an original action. And I give the governor and the attorney general a lot of credit for being willing to say that because it's true. I don't believe that this case is going to be taken and I don't think any of this stuff is going to happen. Well, we thank you both for joining us today. We know that decision really could happen at any time now and um, we will be watching. So thank you again for being our guest today. Thank you. And thank, thank you to the viewers of Newsmakers. Be sure to tune in again as we highlight the issues and sit down with the decision makers who make a difference for all of us. You have been watching a production of Wisconsin Eye, your unfiltered window into legislative deliberations and public policy programming, where our mission is to provide Wisconsinites an opportunity to access the legislative process and connect with conversations that inform our citizenry. Please consider supporting our mission and thank you for watching. Wisconsin Eye, policy made public.